0: Welcome in crossover episode tonight, Brian Barrett here from off the pike and we have Raheem Palmer from the Phillies special and thanks to our friends at FanDuel TV for joining us as well. Raheem, that was an absolutely insane game. We had pretty much everything we had maybe on track to be the worst game of Jason Tatum's career. We had officiating issues in this game. We had sort of Joel and B disappearing late in this game where he had been so good in the previous game. It wasn't a great Harden game either where do you want to start with this thing I think we got to start with Tatum right
1: yeah we got to start with Tatum I mean I was like I was waiting for the Tatum slander like it was <laughs> I mean I was waiting for social media to go off I was about to call him the Donovan McNabb of the NBA um, in terms of just being a guy who could just you know he gets to you know the champion the, the conference finals or he gets to the Super Bowl and just can't I mean pull it off and out of nowhere I mean Three straight threes and the game is over.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's incredible. And the thing is, he was so bad early. He had those 16 points in the fourth quarter. But prior to that, entering that quarter, he had three points. And he had one trip to the foul line. And it was at that time, it was the clear path foul that he got the free throw for. And now, like, one of the things that we were talking about entering this game was, hey, can Tatum get off to a quicker start? And Tatum, again, doesn't score, of course, in the first quarter. So now his last three first quarters, 36 minutes, o of 15 from the field, 0 of 6 from deep, three points. And then somehow, and he was missing bunnies, Raheem. He was smoking layups. I don't think I've ever seen a superstar smoke so many layups like Jason Tatum has in this. He was bricking threes. And then I give him a ton of credit because... And I know it's like, oh, you're the best player on the team. You're supposed to be able to come up with these clutch shots. But as poorly as he shot the ball late in this game, I think what got him going was the wing three over Embiid. that made it eighty four, eighty three. Then he hits yeah. the step back three over max. He makes it eighty seven, eighty three. And then he gets a maxi switch on him, hits a three there, makes it ninety two, eighty four. And then he hits another three to make it at the end where it's ninety five, eighty four. But. From my perspective, he got a mismatch on Embiid where he could step back on him and they got to maxi. So this is something that I've been calling for all series. Go after the mismatches. Every other team in the NBA, mismatch hunts. The Celtics don't do it. They can go after Maxie on every possession whenever they want to. And they haven't been doing it. And finally, the time you do it is when your superstar finally hit a three and you say, "Okay, maybe we help him out a little bit. And I'm not excusing Tatum's performance. But finally, they did the obvious thing in this game, which I'm so happy they finally realized, hey, we can go at Tyrese Maxie. He's small. Jason Tatum is
1: big. Go after him. You know, it felt like they were going at Maxi tonight at certain times, but it felt like Maxie's defense was pretty solid up until that point. Um, I do agree with you. It, to me, it feels like they don't get anything e- easy for Tatum. And the one thing I will say is that it felt like Embiid kind of had Tatum spooked a little bit inside the yeah. arc. I mean, so it's just like when he's driving to the lane, you know Embiid is there. And I, I saw that from the entire Celtics team. The one thing I want to see from Tatum going forward is I think he needs the you know, add that mid-range jumper, you know, get some easy, easy baskets. Cause it feels like right now it's all, you know, to the lane or it's just step back threes. Um, but I, I kind of knew that to me, based on how the Sixers offense have been stalling out, I knew Tatum was going to hit that three over MB. I just felt it.
0: Yeah. And I I'll tell you, I was the opposite side of that. I didn't think he had a chance at hitting it the way that he was shooting the ball all night, but it, it's a great point. Like he doesn't have a floater game and He's actually not a bad mid-range shooter, like, if you look at some of the numbers throughout the postseason, but he just doesn't want to take it. Really, he's become almost what James Harden was in Houston, where it's like, okay, if I can get to the rim, fine. If I can get to the free throw line, fine. Or if I can take a three, fine. But what we saw in the NBA Finals against the Warriors last year, he shot 25% in the in-between area, in between the mid-range and the basket, and that really cost him in that series. And we're seeing that same thing play itself out in the postseason. The one thing I will say, because I'm giving Tatum a lot of credit for coming through clutch when they needed to. And I do think that he made a lot of good plays defensively, even early on when his shot wasn't falling. But the one thing, Raheem, is this Mm. guy is so lucky that he has so much margin of error with this team. I mean, just think about any other superstar. If Steph Curry on Friday night has this game against the Lakers, they lose. If Devin Booker has that type of game, the Suns lose. And I can even go to a guy that's not a superstar, but a star-level player in Jalen Brunson. The guy plays 48 minutes the other night. He has to carry that team. He has the 38 points. If he has a stinker on Friday night against the Miami Heat, they lose. Same thing with Jimmy Butler. This is the only guy in the league that, and he's a first-team all-NBA selection. He's the only guy in the entire league that can get away with these type of stinkers. Now, he did give him credit, hit those shots late, but really, man, if... If I'm Tatum now, I got to look at this game seven and say, this is mine. Like, I have to win this game after my teammates have bailed me out in this series already because Smart, Brogdon, they kept him alive early in this game.
1: Yeah, yeah, Smart was the MVP of this game. I mean, 22 points, 8 of 15, you know, all the hustle plays, you know, 7 rebounds, 7 assists. I mean, he he by far, like, he showed that he was the heart of this team. And, you know, it's so funny because you always hear a lot of people say, you know, Smart probably shouldn't be closing down the stretch. Um they probably should be going to Derek White a little bit more, but I may have I mean, said smart. that once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the entire ringer staff has been saying that, but it's just like I think you saw why that you know it's it's tough for Missoula to come in and, and, and say, you know what, smart, you can't you can't play these big minutes. So um but She yeah, had Tatum, I mean, like you just don't see that margin for error for anybody. And I think you even see it with the Sixers. I mean, to me, in this series, and I've been saying this all season long. James Harden is the Sixers' most important player. And I say that because, you know, as good as Joel Embiid is, you can deny a perimeter player the ball. Like, you saw down the stretch, Joel Embiid didn't get the ball. You know, he had that one mid-range jumper after Tatum took the lead, um, hit the the three to take the lead to make it 84-83, and he missed the mid-range jumper. One of the few mid-range jumpers he missed all day because it just felt like he was making them at will. But you can deny a perimeter, you can deny a center the ball but your right. perimeter player has to close the games. And, you know, I always the comparison I always give is that, you know, Shaq, he had Penny Hardaway. He had Kobe Bryant. He had Dwayne Wade. Those guys were closing these games almost more than Shaq, to be honest with you, because Shaq had free throw issues. You know, it's tough to get the, a center of the ball. So, to me, James Harden has to close the games out. And you saw he was just 4 of 16. He was reluctant to shoot in the paint. You know, he had turnovers. He's dishing the p. PG- um Tucker, he's dishing the melt, and they're missing threes. And I need more than 13 points from James Harden if you're going to win this series. And I just think that's the difference between these two teams is that you guys have those perimeter guys who, you know, can close a game out.
0: Well, the Harden experience is such a weird one, right? Because he goes for the 45 points in game one. And I'm thinking to myself, there's no way he duplicates that in game two. We're not going to see that version of James Harden. And then he's bad again in game, or he's bad in game two, really bad, bad in game three. He has the explosion in game four where Jalen Brown double teams Joel Embiid inexplicably. I'm still mad about that, Raheem, because the series would be over. James Harden hits a wide open three. And then in game five, it wasn't his scoring, but I felt like he had a really good floor game where he sort of controlled everything and that Embiid, James Harden, pick and roll was basically unstoppable for them. And then he has this game tonight and It's sort of similar to like the Celtics. I don't know which version of Jason Tatum showing up in game seven. I do feel like this should wake him up and this should sort of the momentum should carry over from this one. But I feel like with both guys where you say Harden's the most important sixer and obviously Tatum is so important to the Celtics team as the guy that has all the accolades and the guy that has already qualified for the Supermax well over $300 million and it's weird like. If you're a Miami fan, you can't feel confident about your superstar going into a big game. If you're Denver, you feel confident. And I think we're probably in the same spot. Like, I don't feel confident about Tatum. And I'm sure you don't feel confident about T- uh, Harden entering game seven.
1: Yeah, I, I don't I don't feel confident in Harden at all. Um, it's just you just don't know what you're going to get from him. And like I coming into this series, I thought Harden wasn't in the same guy because, you know, you saw that Achilles injury on on March 20th against the Chicago Bulls. He was struggling. And then in the series against the Brooklyn Nets, he was struggling to be switches. So for him to come out and have that monster game one, it was absolutely shocking. And then for him to do it again, it's (laughs) just like, it it just almost feels at random. I mean, you know, they talk about Anthony Davis every other game. I mean, it's clear that Harden's the same way. So I mean, game sevens are historically ugly. So I'm honestly expecting both teams to just look ugly. And, like anything can happen
0: yeah we we kind of already got that too in game six like it's probably going to be something similar but i'm telling you i fear james harden just because i have scar tissue from game one and game four of the series so i'm worried about that one thing i will say is this throughout this series and look we have criticized doc rivers a ton by we i mean like a lot of people in the media right Mm -hmm. because he's blown all these 3-1 series leads he's blown 3-2 series leads and at times you felt like okay He should have done more things from a coaching perspective, like when he's undermanned, he's really good. But then when he has all his guys, he hasn't been as good. And one thing in the series that has been crystal clear is Doc Rivers is a veteran coach that made adjustments. And up until game six on Thursday night, we hadn't seen that from Joe Mazzulla. So some of the things that Doc was doing, he took McDaniels out of the rotation basically because he felt like, hey, if McDaniels is on the court, Rob can cheat off him and sort of be that Romer. He did an outstanding job in game four, getting Jalen Brown off of James Harden to give him easier opportunities, right? Easier driving lanes, better matchups, going after guys like Malcolm Brogdon and Al Horford. So Doc made a really some good decisions, even going to Niang, right, where he could spot up and hit those open shots and force Rob to come out on him. Finally, Raheem, it only took elimination, For Joe Mazzulla to wake up. Now, I had an idea that this is going to happen today. He goes back to the double big lineups. Rob Williams starts the game. Guess what happens? He's a game high plus 20. He goes for 10, 9, and 2. And I will say, I thought he was gassed at the end because he hadn't been playing a lot of minutes. But it took him up until this point to finally press that button. And if you look at it, uh, before this game tonight, in terms of, or excuse me, before this game on Thursday, Robert Williams on the court, Celtics 124.3 offensive rating 111.8 defensive rating best of the regulars a plus 12.5 net rating so I'm thinking to myself like I get the idea of not playing him that much because he's scared of the spacing and all that different type of stuff but man it took him this long to do it and you saw the results it's sort of aggravating from a Celtics perspective that you had this button you could push and you hadn't done it till this point
1: yeah like that was surprising um you know, just because, like, to me, it's just like Robert Williams. Like, he's one of the guys that you can throw at Joel Embiid. And, you know, he's like, he's one of those guys that can make things tough in the lane. And I think you saw that tonight. You know, like, in games, in game five, one of the things that you saw was the, the hard MB pick and roll. They scored, you know, 1.2 points per possession in that pick and roll. And they just dominated in the paint and kind of got whatever they wanted. You know, in game six that was down to just pretty much a point per possession. So I think Robert Williams definitely made an impact defensively. Um, And then offensively, that's the one thing that I, like I I saw, they they got a lot of easy baskets to Robert Williams on those lives. It just, I mean, you see like Marcus smart driving to the basket and you can't defend both. So he probably should have been in there early, especially with um, Horford hasn't been shooting the ball as well as he has in the past. So, um, I did think that was a great move.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting too because like the numbers with him and Al on the court together this year have been tremendous. So plus fifteen point nine ratings. So they're outscoring teams by almost sixteen points per one hundred possessions with those two guys on the court. So I was and I know that the Derek White lineup has been so good throughout the season, but White had really been bad in this series up until he was the worst among their regulars in plus minus. So it made sense to make that move. And now you look at it sort of going forward. I wonder if there is a counter for what Doc's going to do, right? Because obviously he's playing P.J. Tucker a lot of minutes. We saw a lot of Niang. We've seen Melton. And basically, they gambled with the situation with P.J. Tucker where they said, hey, we're okay with you taking threes. And yeah, he hit a couple of them, but he ends up taking, what, seven threes in this game tonight? He's two of seven from the field, or two of seven from three-point territory, I believe he finished out with. So I think that gamble is a wise one. And I wonder if Melton or especially Niang out in the wing but melton is more of a guy that can be a weapon driving those closeouts but at the same time you don't tucker's kind of the guy that gets everybody motivated right so i and he's really good from a defensive perspective so i wonder what doc does i i would assume he does
1: pretty much the same thing like do you think he'll make any changes glenn is in a tough position just because we don't have two-way players in the same vein that you guys have um you know it's like if Melton was hitting his shot tonight, I mean, I think the Sixers win that game because he had like three dagger threes in a row that would have pushed this lead to a point where I don't think the Six the Celtics could have recovered. And you saw down the stretch, it was just like I, I said it on Twitter. I'm like, he's gonna have to pull Melton for Niang, but then when you pull him for Niang, you don't get the same defensive presence. And you know, Niang didn't really hit a, a clutch three down the stretch, so. It's like you end up pulling him for PJ Tucker just because you want that defensive presence. But if PJ Tucker's not hitting his three, it just makes the offense a lot easier to defend. So I just think Glenn is kind of really in a tough spot and he kind of has to just play the hot hand. Um, um, I think you know, you'll probably see PJ Tucker in the game down the stretch just because he does the dirty work, he can defend, you know, those wings that you guys have, but um, it's pretty much between him and Melton, honestly.
0: I felt like Jalen had a nice start to this game, but then he did some of those typical Jalen things. Like at one point, he's just dribbling the ball at the top of the key. He loses it. It's a tie game at that particular point in time. And that's where we get the clear path foul. It ends up being two shots the other way because Tatum picks up that foul. But what we saw from the Celtics team last postseason is they turn the ball over. And ordinarily, when they turn the ball over 16 times, they lose. Luckily, in this case, that did not happen. But I was surprised with the fact that it wasn't a super Jalen game, and we know that Tatum didn't get going till late. So the fact that the Celtics were able to sort of stay alive in this game when Jalen had it going early but then kind of faltered, and the fact that Tatum was bad throughout the game until the very end, that's one of the things that surprised me. We went mentioned Smart, but the other guy that I think had a real impact in this game was Brogdon early, and Brogdon was really good in the first half, kind of keeping that offense alive. And one of the things I thought about him is, in this game, he was hitting his three. And the other portion of that is... He's the one guy throughout this whole series, I think, has taken advantage of what Philly doesn't do well, where we went over this, Raheem, where the transition defense for Philadelphia all season long has been bad. And finally, like we've seen Brogdon push the ball, push the ball, push the ball when some of the other Celtics haven't been doing that. So the fact that you can bring Brogdon off the bench and he really saves this game in some sense for the Celtics, like and you think back to the offseason, you don't make this move for Malcolm Brogdon. You're probably going home in game six, as great as Smart was, and he was tremendous in this game. You needed Brogdon, too, with the way that your superstars really weren't great in this one.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, without a doubt. And, you know, the one thing I, I'm just noticing is that you, you guys only played seven guys tonight. Like, we yeah, didn't took Grant out. Yeah, Grant. I mean, Grant didn't play. I mean, he's been a big part of the rotation for you know quite some time. So you know that was that was kind of shocking to to see. So I mean, Brogdon playing thirty minutes and giving you everything that he he gave was just huge. I mean, this is a guy who you know is just is pushing the pace, hitting the three, and you know, I mean, it's a common thing with you guys when you guys are hitting the three. I mean, you guys can't be beat. <laughs> so you know, fifteen to thirty five from behind the arc, you guys got off to that big lead to start the game. And, you know, I think how you guys came out was huge, Um, just because you guys didn't let the Sixers really get any momentum. And, you know, the second half, the Sixers kind of had control of the game, but they didn't have more than a a two- to four-point lead, really.
0: Yeah, well, the threes is a great point because Tim Bontemps said this a couple of weeks ago, and I've been tracking it ever since. So when the Celtics hit north of 40% of their threes after the game tonight, they're now 35-2. and When they hit self of 40% from three, they're 29 and 28. So they're basically a 500 team when they don't hit 40% of their threes. When they hit 40% of their threes, they're basically unbeatable. Now, Jason Tatum tried to make it that they didn't get to that 40% threshold tonight, but they certainly did. The other thing that stuck out to me about the Celtics is, and maybe part of this is what we mentioned about the Rob adjustment, is the defense was actually there. Where we've seen too many times in this postseason, specifically against Philly, where the Celtics' defense has just been downright atrocious, and especially in Game 5, the defense on the pick-and-roll from Harden and Embiid, it was just so nonchalant, where Embiid was walking in to these easy free-throw jumpers, which Embiid, he thrives there. He shoots 49% this year on long mid-rangers. In that game, 11 of his two-pointers were deemed wide open, where the closest defender is at least, or I should say, open four to six feet wide open, six feet or more, at least at least open. 11 of those shots, he hit six of them. It's as if the Celtics didn't know what the game plan was, it's as if they didn't know that Embiid can hit those shots. And if you look at it, that game five loss against Philly, a 121.1 rating for the Celtics in terms of the defense. The worst team in the league this year was the Spurs at like a buck 18. The Celtics in this game tonight, they pick it up from a defensive efficiency standpoint. And in the first quarter, they held Philly to an 84 Offensive rating, So it's weird that a team that made it to the finals last year was the number two defense in the league during the regular season. They've had so many times where the defensive energy wasn't there. And I would imagine to be there for game seven, too, because it's an elimination. It's sort of like there's been this change with the Celtics where they've gone from this defensive juggernaut to this offensive team this year and the three. And sometimes they just let go of the rope defensively, and that is a problem because I, I, I like I said, Raheem, I think it's going to be there in Game Seven, but I can't guarantee it. Just like I can't guarantee the Tatum thing because we've seen way too many times where the defense is just let go of the rope.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I was like, I was talking about this on the podcast today. Um, you know, since Game Three of the first round series against the Hawks, the Celtics had a, like defensive rating of one nineteen, so. I'm not sure that you guys can really even count on the defense at this point in time. I just think, you know, we've seen enough through the Celtics in this postseason that this is an offensive-minded team at this point. Um, and, you know, this core has been around each other for a long time. And I think you, you do tend to see slippage. I mean, you look at the Golden State Warriors, um, you know, that core who made a ton of deep runs, you know, they were first and second in defense every year. But that last year with Kevin Durant, I mean, they, they just weren't defending. They were winning with offense. And I think you're seeing that same type of slippage with this the Celtics team. But then, in addition, I mean, you got a brand-new coach who I don't know if he emphasizes defense as much as Ime Udoka. Um, I, I can't – to me, it's inexplicable when you have these, these wings um, that you're not the same defensive team. But, you know, maybe some of that is, you know, slippage due to Horford. Like, I mean, you look at a guy like Horford, right? Joel Embiid couldn't deal with him a couple years ago. I mean, he was like his right. kryptonite. And now, you know, Joel Embiid has pretty much figured that matchup out. So um, I, I think, you know, some of it is Horford. You know, also Tom Lord isn't the same guy that he was last year. Um, you know, he had, what did he have? a Meniscus, men, meniscus injury? Yeah. So it's like, um, I, I think it's clear that, you know, like even, like, he played well tonight, but I don't know how consistent you can get He can be, you know, over an entire seven game series if he's playing big minutes.
0: Yeah. And maybe that will be the blessing of the disguise that he waited this long to make that adjustment. Right. Maybe it'll work out that he'll have energy for that game seven. But part of the defensive issue it, it is Missoula, to your point. And one of the things he said after the Game 5 loss was, we had the intention of playing hard. I don't know what that means. You intended to play hard? That doesn't make any sense. The effort wasn't there from a defensive perspective. And one of the things I noticed, like they made the adjustments tonight, but every time they show the bench, it's Horford and Smart. Those are the guys doing all the talking. It's it's a, like that would be Ime. Ime Udoka last yeah. year would be that guy. He would get in everybody's face. Ten games into the season, he's calling out Tatum and Brown. He didn't care. He was sort of the tough guy on the team, right? Like sort of. What P.J. Tucker did to Embiid. Remember that? P.J. Tucker's like firing up Embiid at the end of game five. Like, let's go. You got to get it together. That's Emei. And for this team, Joe Mazzulla really doesn't have that in his arsenal. Part of it maybe is that he's 34. He was behind the bench last year. Like, he wasn't even on the bench. And this guy takes over. They have this 21-5 and start. And everyone's like, oh, this is magic. The offense embraced the threes. And then we saw, okay, maybe you got to play some defense. And I just wonder now, like, going into game seven, I think one of – in I don't think this is over yet in terms of the Celtics narrative because if they lose game seven, Jalen Brown we know is qualified for the supermax. Jason Tatum is qualified for the supermax. But if they don't win this game seven, I believe like the Sixers, Doc, he's not gonna get fired after this series. I can't see that happening. Maybe you disagree with that. But from a Celtics Honestly,
1: I I, I, I I can see it. I'm gonna be honest with you.
0: If he if he fall I, yeah, three two, if he falls
1: yeah. Yeah, just because I mean, you look down the stretch, I mean, they didn't run any pick and rolls. Um, for a Hart and an MB and, you know, like I, I said before that, you know, in game five, they were scoring 1.2 points per possession on Harden and MB pick and rolls. That was down to a point per possession, but you know, that's still, that's still pretty efficient, you know? Um, and they didn't run any of that, you know? And then the fact that it's just like, they got nothing easy down the stretch. Um, and that game was theirs. I mean, for, for the Celtics to close out the game on a 14 to three run. On the road, after yeah. the clear path foul. I mean, it's going to be hard for, for, for the Glenn to survive that. Um, and you have people <laughs> all on. Like, it, it yeah, you're is. probably right.
0: Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're probably right on that. But from a Celtics perspective, if they lose, then, yeah. hey, is Joe Missoula safe? Even though they took off the interim tag. I would imagine that they put the Supermax in front of Jalen, even if, that's, if you don't believe Jalen's a Supermax player. With everything that happened with the Kevin Durant trade rumors, he was really upset about that. He had the quotes to Logan Murdoch in The Ringer a couple of, what, months ago, where he talked about Boston and if he wants to stick around or not. Like There's been some weird stuff with Jalen, but I can't imagine nobody, we haven't seen anybody pass up on that Supermax. So if it's not Jalen, it's not Tatum, they're not breaking up that duo. We will see about Missoula based on sort of what transpires here. But if they lose Game 7, I would imagine that they look at maybe... Some rotation guys, whether it be Robert Williams, whether it be Marcus Smart, who's like always on the trading block, right? Derek White, like they have a lot of valuable pieces if they want to make a change when it comes to this team. I can't imagine it'd be White after the season that he's had. But I think everything's on the table besides Tatum and Jalen if they don't win this game seven.
1: Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know, um, you know I always hear you guys talk about Marcus Smart um, and, and Bill as well. I'm wondering if Smart is in a very similar position as like Dylan Brooks. And I don't mean that from a derogatory standpoint, but I mean that from a standpoint of a guy who is a big part of the core and, you know, was kind of like a leader on this team, but is playing too big of a role to the point where it hurts the team. Like, yeah. you can't ask Marcus Smart to take a step back. So I wonder if he's a guy that you ship out, um, because I think they're seeing the same thing with, and obviously Marcus is a much better player than Dylan Brooks, but you see the same thing with Dylan Brooks. You can't tell a guy who was an essential part of the core to take a step back. Um, so I'm wondering if, you know, you guys may have to do that with Marcus Smart Uh, and granted Marcus Smart was the MVP tonight, but there were times, there's times where it's just like, yo, dude, like, you know, you're not the, the guy on this team.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think he's in a weird position too, right? Because he was the first lottery guy out of the Tatum-Brown trio, right? So it's sort of like he's on their level, but he's not on their level as an offensive player. So sometimes he is a little bit too involved. But man, you got to appreciate what Smart brought to the table. I just mentioned it because he's a valuable piece for a contending level team. And as is Rob, if somebody wants to bet against the health record of Robert Williams, those would be the two guys I would think that would bring you something back in return. So I definitely think something will happen if they don't win game seven. So before we go, Raheem... Let's get to that Game 7. What is your prediction? Philly, or do you think the Celts win this one?
1: You know, the interesting thing about this Game 7 is that, like, it's not until Sunday. Yeah. So we've been going every other night for the last couple of days, and now these teams are rested now. So I think that kind of changes things. Um, you know, I was taking this, I mean, Game 7s are historically uh, uh, a lower scoring game that's ugly but I'm going to be honest with you. I just, for some reason, I just feel like the Sixers are going to kind of overcome their demons. I don't see a, I don't see a Celtics blowout. I'm going to be honest with you. I see a, a close game with either team winning close. I, I I don't see either one of these teams blowing the other team. out. I think these two teams are just evenly matched. I think the Celtics are the deeper team, Um, but I don't trust either one of these coaches. I, like you said before, I don't trust, Tat- you don't trust Tatum. How can you trust Harden? um how can like who can you trust um so it's just (laughs) nobody yeah I I don't have a pick for this one but I'm gonna say it's gonna be a close game that's gonna come, come down the stretch I'm leaning Celtics just
0: because the way it ended the fact that it feels like Jason Tatum has now been introduced to the Eastern Conference semifinals it feels like now those shots should carry him over and I know it like momentum it doesn't always carry over to the next game but i do feel like those shots were so big for Tatum with how poorly he had played he really changed the narrative i mean i cannot imagine what his post game press conference would have been like if they lost this game i mean this is a stinker of all stinkers this is like going back to Harden when he lost to San Antonio without Kawhi Leonard where he had 10 points that's how bad this thing was looking so i'm going to go with the Celtics and i do believe that Tatum has a big game, but I'm with you. I think it's going to be close late, which makes me worried because up until this game tonight, the Celtics in clutch time, their defensive rating in the playoffs had been a 142. They were able mm-hmm. to get some stops tonight. Some of those were just misses by Philly. They got some good looks, but I'm going with the Celtics, Raheem, and I think it's a 30-plus point game for Tatum.
1: Okay. I, you know, I, I'm not mad at it. I just, it it's, it's, I just have a weird feeling about this game. I don't know why. I just uh, This Sixers team feels like a different team to me. This year, yeah, it feels like they've turned the corner in ways that they haven't in the past. Um, but I, I think you know, this is a, this is the legacy game seven. Um, yeah, it's going to change the course of both of these franchises, whoever win or lose. I mean, win or lose is going to change the course because I, I think you know, you mentioned earlier, if the Celtics lose, I think you're going to see some trades. I think if the Sixers lose, I mean, we could see the death of the process era. Um, because I, I just I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, they've, there's been talks about James Harden going to Houston. I mean, James Harden, like, he was 4-16 tonight. This is the 21st time he shot 25% or worse in a playoff game. So I don't know if the Sixers are going to be willing to pay him again. So um, whatever happens, it's going to be massive changes for either one of these teams.
0: Here's my one lock for our friends at FanDuel. Grant Williams is not going to hit seven threes like he did in Game 7 against Milwaukee last year. In all likelihood, Grant Williams will not see the floor after what we saw in Game 6. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike. That is Raheem Palmer from the Philly Special. Raheem, great stuff, man. Enjoy Game 7, people.
2: This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got... See website for details.
4: Welcome back to the local angle right here on FanDuel TV. I'm John Zastrzemski, the host of New York, New York. And I know that the fellas were catching you up on what's going on with the Philadelphia 76ers and the Boston Celtics. And I am happy to report that we are not talking about the end of the New York Knickerbocker season. They were faced with the brink of elimination. They were down three games to one against this well-oiled Miami Heat machine that has been able to turn it on again here in the postseason. And you had to wonder what kind of response and what kind of effort would you get from the New York Knickerbockers at home with their backs up against the wall? Well. I think the answer to that question is a simple one. Jalen Brunson, the Knicks' big free agent move from last summer, Jalen Brunson, who to me did not get the sort of respect that he deserved from an all NBA standpoint. I get it. Guards are loaded. There are a lot of great guards across the association. But if you're going to talk about impact, if you're going to talk about valuable, if you're going to talk about hands down, who's the best player on the New York Knicks? Well, that's Jalen Brunson in a landslide. Anybody who is going to try to tell you otherwise has not sat down and has watched the New York Knicks over the course of this regular season. So, it does not surprise me at all that Jalen Brunson goes and has his best performance of the postseason in the elimination game, in game number five, and simply put, Jalen Brunson wasn't going to let the New York Knicks lose on their home floor on Wednesday evening. He goes and gives you 38, 9, and 7. And I know that we live in a world where people like to take things and blow them completely out of context. I consider myself quite the historian of the New York Knicks franchise, especially from the time of my coming of age in the early to mid-1990s going through the Ewing years and Sprewell and Houston and Marcus Camby and, oh, don't get me through them, uh, Isaiah Thomas and Stefan Marbury and Steve Francis, oh, it makes me want to drink. But I could tell you a thing or two about the history of the New York Knicks. I can say without hesitation that Jalen Brunson's Game 5 is hands down one of the best New York Knick playoff performances I have seen in my lifetime. And I get it. It's not quite the bar of the Lakers. It's not quite the bar of the Boston Celtics. Yeah, that may be true. That's because the Knicks don't have the same history as those two illustrious franchises. The fact that you're comparing the stat line of Jalen Brunson in game number five to a stat line that Clyde Frazier had at one point in the postseason. I mean, does that not speak to impact and what he has provided the New York Knicks? He's been everything you could ask for in end sum. You know, when the Knicks gave him that big contract going back to last summer, I liked him as a player. I totally botched the idea of him maybe being overpaid. He's underpaid. He's underpaid as far as I'm concerned. It's going to go down as one of the best free agent signings the Knicks have ever made. And I don't think the Knicks are going to win this series. Let me make this perfectly clear. Game five was about adding more credibility to what has already been a successful New York Knicks season. They win their first playoff series in a decade. They go and they find themselves in the four or five matchup with Cleveland. They embarrass the Cleveland Cavaliers in the first round of the NBA playoffs. The Knicks are building, they are moving in the right direction no matter what happens in this series against. A Miami team that clearly is not phased by the big stage. A Miami team that's got a whole lot of different ways to beat you. They have, in my estimation, the best player in the series in Jimmy Butler, even though he was not the best player on the four in game five on Wednesday night. And they probably have, in my estimation, the best coach in the NBA. Popovich on his last legs. All-timer, we all understand that. Steve Kerr has accomplished a lot with the Golden State Warriors, but I got news for you. Steve Kerr's got Steph freaking Curry on his team. Makes him look a heck of a lot smarter having Steph Curry doing his thing. If I could have one coach in the NBA right now, it's Eric Spolstra. That's how brilliant a tactician, a a a Zen master he has become, escaping the shadow of Riley escaping the shadow of the Heatles and kind of building the Miami Heat in his own image. He's done a wonderful job over these last few years. And yeah, there have been instances in this series where he's run circles around Tom Thibodeau, but I think he's got better personnel to play in the modern day NBA compared to what the New York Knickerbockers have, especially when you consider the lack of prowess from a shooting standpoint. But when you go back to game five, would have been a bitter pill to swallow for the Knicks on their home floor, down three games to one, laying an egg. And it looked like in the first quarter of this game, they were going to lay an egg. Scored 15 or 16 points. They're turning the ball over. Julius Randle is turning the ball over and is infuriating the 19,000 at Madison Square Garden. But again, it goes back to Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson would not let the New York Knickerbockers Lose game number five. It got hairy towards the end of the game. Duncan Robinson probably drove a whole lot of Knickerbocker fans to drink in the fourth quarter. Kyle Lowry continues to be a pest as he turns back the clock in this particular series. But it was about survival for the Knicks. It was Brunson bringing them home. The big dunk from Hartenstein, who is all heart and soul. Mitchell Robinson, who... Is not exactly known for his prowess at the free throw line winning over that Madison Square Garden crowd. The Garden crowd basically willing Mitchell Robinson to go and hit a couple of free throws late in the game when they were pulling the whole hack-a-shack, hack-a-mitch, whatever you want to call it. And then how about Quentin Grimes on one leg, getting a steal from Jimmy Butler, getting the ball back into New York Knickerbockers' hands, and the Knicks have a moment on Wednesday. So. Jalen Brunson, all-time performance. The New York Knicks live to die another day. Friday night, game six. Let's be real. Fandle, as we speak, has this line currently at five and a half. I think five and a half is a fair and reasonable number. I wouldn't be surprised if by tip-off, we're talking about this point spread maybe in the six or the six and a half range because you have to imagine Anybody with conventional wisdom, knowing the heat, knowing their personnel, waiting on that monster Jimmy Butler game that, let's be real, we have not gotten at any point in this series. Butler was superhuman against the Milwaukee Bucks in round number one. Jimmy Butler has not been superhuman in this series. In fact, he was quite pedestrian in game number five. Keep waiting for that big Butler game. We know the Heat can light it up from three. And through the first five games of this series, they have been the better team. I think all roads are pointing towards the Miami Heat wrapping this series up in six games. I know if I had a wager on it, that would be my prediction. That would be my expectation. And I thought the Knicks would give you a moment in game five. And that's exactly what happened. The only thing the Knicks have going for them is that come Friday night, let's be real, nobody in America is giving them a chance to win this game. Nobody. And for a team that actually was a favorite in this series, according to our friends from FanDuel, according to the folks out in the desert, at around that minus 150, minus 160 clip, now the pressure could be awful. You already lost two games. In South Florida. You look outclassed in those two games in South Florida. The recipe and the blueprint for the Knicks to have a chance in this game, it's a simple one. Jalen Brunson has got to be the best player on the floor once again. The Knicks have to be close to as efficient as they were offensively in game five. And did the Knicks find something with the smaller lineup? And did it lead to better looks? and? a barrage of three-point shots that in many ways is out of their character. That's what the Knicks will need to do. They're going to have to shoot a ton of threes and make a ton of threes to get this back to Madison Square Garden on Monday night. And what a birthday present it would be. I don't even want anything for my birthday. Here's what I want. I want an outright New York Knicks win on Friday night so that way I can ring in my 35th year on this planet at the world's most famous arena, rocking and rolling, hoping and praying that the Knicks can get back to the Eastern Conference Finals for the first time since they played the Indiana Pacers and Patrick Ewing was in his final season as a member of the New York Knicks. It's asking a lot. But you want to dream big wishes, especially milestone years. I guess 35 would kind of fit that description. Fandle. Vegas, not giving the Knicks much of a chance. John Jastrzemski, the host of New York, New York. Full disclosure, not giving the New York Knickerbockers much of a chance. This is a feel-good house money type of game as far as I'm concerned. The Knicks will have plenty of time to answer their offseason questions. Can they find a taker for Julius Randle? Even with Julius Randle finding his way to an all-NBA roster for the second time in three years. Who is that big star that is going to be tantalized by what they've seen at Madison Square Garden with all the stars, with all the, the big prowess that you get? No better place to watch a playoff game than at that world's most famous arena, especially when the stars are coming out. Sorry, LA. Sorry, Boston. It's just bigger. It's different. The vibe is different because the city is New York. So these are questions for the offseason. My question is you get ready on Friday night is can the New York Knickerbockers do the unthinkable and get us to a game number seven on Monday night I'm betting against it but we can dare to dream coming up we'll head to Chicago Jason Goff the full go extraordinaire he'll set the stage here on the local angle for what's coming up in the Windy City hopefully the next time you guys are talking to me I'm looking forward to the New York Knickerbockers in the Eastern Conference Finals. See, now I'm getting a little delusional because after all, I don't think that's going to be the case. All right, full go. Jason Goff, he joins us next.
5: All right, fellas. Well, we started off this thing with number one pick, Madness. Got into a little rap with uh, Vic Mansa Rap Life and Art. Uh, Always, always cool to talk to artists about things like that. And not now we get to this old sports room here on the full go brought to you by the ringer. And of course, Spotify is the gang. How was your last day and a half, two days since I've seen you guys, Chris, and of course, Tony Gill, how, how have things been going for you brothers?
4: Well, uh, so I have, my kid is in Spanish immersion, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so she's so learning cool. Spanish, you know, as a kindergartner. And so they had like, this, uh, this Aztec Afro Cuban festival, Okay. Uh, yesterday and so like you're going to the school and like you're hanging out with the kids they got like, tamales they had people in like feathers and like outfits and stuff and like they whip out these marimbas you get like 25 kids going on a marimba yeah. you know you can yeah, yeah, yeah. vibe. you know it's a beautiful so, noise you know, he's yeah. flying around you know got some nice food some spicy <laughs> right. food Feels good, man. When you get those kids. Tony, you, you're gonna love it. Like you just drink it all in, man. Like
5: yeah, yeah, see? again, again, Chris Sutton vibes and shit. There it is. is. <laughs> you were thinking it too, Tony. I know you were thinking it. <laughs> shout out to shout out to the Chief Vibe Officer, the CBO of the show, my man Chris Sutton. Tony, how's this last couple of days been treating you since we last talked, brother? Ah, oh, man, it's been great. Just stacking up these number one picks. You know, I got my number one pick baking in the oven right now. You know, you understand Aww, me? Look at you. Yeah, look at uh, you. My yeah. sequel. I barely know you anymore. My sequel. Look at you. How do sequel? Oh, my. Um, don't curse that beautiful woman with that <laughs> it's all stuff coming out, over. Shout out, to Steph out there. what would what, what'd you what'd you find out huh? I, I, I know you're looking at images and all those things these days yeah man i mean i'm we're switching you know uh coverage uh so to speak switching uh mm-hmm. health care a little bit um going somewhere closer to the city because we live in the city of chicago so um the 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 difference in in care uh, was was uh, is the word palpable. <laughs> you can you can really feel, can feel the feel difference it. from between Northside and and inner city. Uh, and, and you know I'm a, I'm am a proponent of of you know everybody should have access to you know health insurance and stuff like that. <laughs> but oh uh, shit, from public like, like 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 Tony been... about to come out. <laughs> I should have been treated a little differently, you know? (laughs) He did it. He did it. it. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Tony Gill has entered the chat, ladies and gentlemen. He went to a city hospital and is like, you know what? I don't know how y'all do it around here, but uh, I'm Tony Gill. here's, here's Here's where I know the difference, right? A young dude being thrown in the mix for a franchise and being told you are one of the pillars or maybe the pillar to the underpinning of the success that we should have going forward. And then the evaluation period is not uh, for the faint of heart because people don't give a shit. That you're 17 in Connor Bedard's case, people don't give a shit that you're 20 years old, 19 years old in Elton Brand's case, and then we fast forward to the to the recently the most successful of that in in those three sports when we talk about football, basketball, and hockey, and Derrick Rose. Like when Derrick Rose was was made the pick, we, we we do a lot of revisionist history. One, I remember people in this city. You know this city wasn't. It was probably seventy thirty. It, it wasn't no ninety to ten. Yeah, raise your hand right now, Tr- Tony Gill. It was seventy thirty. Derrick Rose versus Mike Beasley because of what Michael Beasley did that year at Kansas State and shortly coming off of Kevin Durant's Texas run, where in the same conference, obviously he didn't play against Kevin, but in the same conference, dudes are from the same area in in, in uh, the DMV, right? A uh, PG county, right? So. Everybody's compared, And of course, Mike Beasley was a, a walking bucket from the time he was 15, 16 years old. He's six foot eight. There were a lot of people like, hey, you go with the six foot eight small four. This is not a little man's league. And then people did some digging and, and saw some of the things that popped up in Mike Beasley's career. Right. I mean, he still I, I still think Michael Beasley go out there and get 20 points against anybody. It's just how good is your team when he's getting those 20 like a, an official talented score. But just didn't come together for a lot of different reasons. Um, The Derrick Rose part though, when he was drafted and the the situations that he was put in and being from this city, the added pressure of that and Vinny Del Negro being your head coach is the first year. And I remember Derrick Rose not playing fourth quarters because Vinny Del Negro wanted to win games, right? I remember those times. So as we get set to embark upon this Connor Bedard adventure, I will caution everybody. Listen, listen, let it happen. Let it happen. Like we're talking about a 17-year-old. Like I make fun of college football fans because to me is a bunch of 40 to 50 to 60-year-olds pinning their hopes and dreams on the, uh, <laughs> the, the, responsible, the responsible nature and uh, you know, sound decision-making of 17 to 20-year-olds on college campuses. Like that's how fragile a house of cards college football is usually. But now when we're talking about professional stakes, this team, you talk about a team that needed a rinse. This team, after everything that's happened with the staff, after the Cow Beach situation, after all of the stuff that's happened at town hall meetings, a team that needed a rinse, not only in the city, but in the league was the Chicago Blackhawks. Now, I'm not saying that this provides that rinse them. I'm not saying that the people that were culpable in those times that still are around that building still don't have those things on their hands as they do and as they should. But going forward, We're a week away from what, 15 years ago, 15. I'm talking about Derrick Rose and Conor Bedard in the same light for a reason, because 15 years ago, the Bulls had a 1.8% chance to get Derrick Rose and they got him, right? Conor Bedard comes 15 years later and (laughs) there was, you know, obviously the chances were uh, a lot better to get Conor Bedard and the number one pick for the Blackhawks, but they got it. But Bulls fans, I know you've been waiting for morsels this entire pod. I know you have. Start to feel it. Start to get that good juju going. Yeah, Bill Simmons. Bill Simmons actually texted me, uh, yesterday. It's like, oh, that's a, that's a huge deal, huh? I'm like, oh shit. Bill gonna want me to talk hockey on the next pod. So let me, let me go ahead and knock this on out. (laughs) But yeah, the relevancy factor that, that happens and, and, and is attributed to an organization. Once you get that number one pick, it, the, the reach is, is farther than you could even imagine. $3 million in seats were sold in the last 36 hours. $3 million. That's how much this kid has made for this organization already. So Bulls fans, just bide your time. Enjoy yourself over these next six, seven days. We're going to have a pod for you next Thursday because guess what? It's the draft lottery. And guess what the percentage is for getting the number one pick for the Bulls this year? That's right. 1.8%, the same percentage that it was 15 years ago to get Derek Rose. Now, now, I don't want to get you guys, you know, I don't want to have y'all walking around, you know, with the semi tucked out here, but go ahead and get excited a little bit. Right, yeah, I know it moved a little bit for you out there in Bulls Land, Victor Wembenyama. Uh huh, mm-hmm. this is the first pod that I've said his name correctly in slight about up, a good six slight months. Show. Slight, slight, a yeah, little bit, you know, <laughs> bit, oh, keep, bit. The, keep the semi tucked, you know what <laughs> I mean, you know. But, but Have 15 Rick. years ago, yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> you can do something with it. Hey, it ain't your best work, but you can do something with it. Yeah, you know, man. You, know it's enjoy, you know, enjoy your yourself, yeah. enjoy yourself. 15 years ago, <laughs> the same thing happened happen for the bulls and hopefully it'll happen
2: because man this continuity thing is going to be tough to sell next year this episode is brought to you by 20th century studios kingdom and the planet of the apes as a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike kingdom and the planet of the apes enter the kingdom in imax on may 10th and in theaters everywhere get
4: tickets now